Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory heroes, and welcome to another episode of Whining About Herstory, the currently socially distanced podcast where two longtime friends talk about women from history you haven't heard of and sometimes drink wine. Today, I'm not drinking anything, and I'm also Kelly. I am also not drinking anything, and I am also Emily, so I'm actually glad I'm not alone in that. We did not discuss it, but I'm hoping to take Charlie for a walk after this, so I'm like, well, probably shouldn't be doing that while riding a buzz. Right, and I'm like, I haven't eaten lunch yet, and I'm like, let's let's not tempt that. I mean, I know it's a Saturday and stuff, but still, <laughs> I have stuff yeah. I need to get done today. I did just get the tracking code for my wine delivery, though, so I'm very excited about that. I will have, like, a fuck ton of bottles of wine in my house that I will have to get through, and I'm realizing I'm a little nervous about that because Jared's not a wine person, so I'm going to be drinking, like, six bottles of wine by myself, you guys. Tell me, text me where you got it from, and I'll try and order the same bottles. I actually, ah, I need to text you uh, the code because... I got the box of wine using a promo code from when Jared bought some concert tickets, but then his dad gave us a little card with the same discount, like the same deal for the same box of wine. And I just need so, yeah, to like text send that a to me, and that. then we can drink together apart. Yes, because everyone's being really cool about the fact you know we're under quarantine socially distancing and it's hard for us to like coordinate with wines because we're always just like i'm gonna go to some random liquor store and just grab whatever like feels right right but i'm like we need to get back to the wine eventually like i feel like by the time all this ends we're just gonna be w-h-i-n-i-n-g about herstory (laughs) still valid it is. I, I feel it. So, do you have a say their name this week? I don't have a particular one. Um, I do have a say their name, and uh, it actually goes into the person I'm covering. So, uh, the person I'm covering this week was a recommendation from one of our listeners, Tess. And uh, we follow her on Instagram, and she is fantastic. I think we've talked about her a little before. She's the one that has the, the house wolf. And then when the wolf is, when it's on the beach, it's the beach wolf. And I was like... Yep do you guys seriously have wolves there? Like, are you fucking kidding me? And she's like, no, it's a dog. Like, I just call it a wolf. And I was like, I'm dumb, but that's fine. Um, But she's really amazing. So she is uh, going through a transition. Uh, She's transgender. And she's documenting it on Instagram, which is really cool. It's really insightful. Um, I don't have any friend, like, I don't know anyone who's going through that transition. So it's, it's really fascinating to, to see that process. Um, and it gives you a lot of insight into how difficult that decision is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, she's also really into Virginia Woolf, which I'm like, oh, Tess, if you didn't already have my heart, honey. (laughs) Right. So, uh, yeah, she's going through this incredible journey and like, I kind of hate that word, like, journey, but I don't know what else to call it. Um, But she's doing this incredible thing, and it's not easy, but, it like, she's such a strong person, and I'm so glad that she, like, listens to us and likes us. (laughs) Right? Yeah, and it's it's been incredible just seeing her photos pop up on Instagram and stuff. Like, it's a lot of fun. 
Yeah. And uh, Tess, we love you. And thank you so much for the recommendation because there is no way I would have heard about this woman otherwise, I don't think. Because she she's... We cover women from all over the world, uh, but this woman's from Canada, and I'm actually deeply ashamed that I have never heard of her. Because and and you'll see why. But I'm okay. like, how? Like she's so she's just up north. Like Minnesota is like one foot in Canada, one foot out of Canada, basically. Oh, yeah. And I haven't heard of this woman. So Tess, thank you so much for the recommendation. We love you so much, and we keep do. being a badass babe. So since neither of us are drinking anything, we're still going to like do a cheers uh, because why the hell not? So what are we cheersing to? Tess? Cheers to you, Tess. Cheers. Clink. Clink. <laughs> Aggressive clinking. <laughs> All right. Uh, I go first this week, right? You do. Okay. That's perfect because then it's not like. 30 minutes in. Hey, remember when I was talking like 30 minutes ago about Tess and how awesome she is? Well, we're coming back to that. So, uh, uh, Tess's uh, recommendation was Viola Desmond. And she is like a Canadian superhero. And I'm, thank you so much again for the recommendation. And I'm, like I said, I'm pretty sure Tess is in the, in Canada. Uh, I don't know. I've never asked, but, this is like a hometown hero. Like, I think everyone in Canada is familiar with Viola Desmond. And so I just want to use the opportunity to say, if you have some heroes from your local area, your state, your city, your country, whatever, that we probably haven't heard of, I super want those stories. So please email them to us at whiningabouthistory at gmail.com. Yes, please do. Anyway. As Americans, we're pretty familiar with American slavery and the civil rights movement. But what we are very unfamiliar with is the fight for civil rights waged uh, in our neighbors to the north. Can't America's hat. And we don't deserve you guys. So this is just one of the many stories that came out of Can Canada's civil rights movement. Viola Desmond was born on July 6th. 1914 in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. And I'm embarrassed to say that I spent a lot of time staring at a map of Canada because I'm like, okay, I get they don't have states. Like, it's all Canada, but then there are provinces and then yep. there's like cities in that because I was like, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. So that would be like Rochester, Minnesota, Minnesota. United States. Yep. And so... For everyone else who isn't, like, super familiar with Canada, Nova Scotia is on the far east side of the country, like, just northeast of Maine. So that's kind of the geographic area we're dealing with. Her parents were getting busy on the reg because she was one of ten children. Jeez. Her, they were just waltzing out, strolling a cane by the end, like, whoop-de-doo! <laughs> Viola's parents were actually an interracial couple, uh, so her mother was white and her father was black, which is super unusual for the time. Oh, yeah. And actually, I took a sociology class in college, and the professor said something. It's the only thing I remember from the whole damn class, but he was talking about these weird racial rules that we have in society. They're very unspoken, but how a white man... In a, in a leading role, 
can have a love interest of any ethnicity. But a black man, like, very rarely has a female love interest who's white. Because, of course, the woman of color wants to be with the white man because he's like, he's white. He's as good as it gets. But for a black man to end up with a white woman, it's like, no, no, because we have to protect our women and, like, she's downgraded. Like, and and here, like, after he said that, I watch every movie now and I cannot think of a couple off of the top of my head where the black man gets the white woman, except that movie Get Out. But the white woman was evil. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Like, at least off the top of my head, there might be some out there, but... Like sitting like here now, a- I can't think of any. Like add us with that stuff, because I, I, it blows my mind to this day. So that's super cool. Uh, so Viola uh, primarily grew up with her grandparents, who were prominent members in of Halifax's Black community. Now I'm sure we all remember Madam C.J. Walker, whom we covered in episode 47. Kelly covered her, and it was an amazing story, and uh, how she revolutionized hair care for Black women. But she was not the only person to see the need for black women to have access to beauty products. Because remember, to take, like, pride in your appearance is to have humanity. Because before, when you're a slave, that's a luxury that, like, you can't, like, you're not entitled to that. So before we uh, get all up in arms for this being vain, let's remember, this was, like, a huge step forward in, like, reclaiming humanity. For black women. Oh, yeah. And it was about taking their their race back, you know, because yeah. before it was, oh, you want to try and be as white as possible. So you weren't using products for your style of hair. You know, you were trying to make yourself as white as possible. So you wanted straight hair and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, coming out with hair products for, you know, african-american hairstyles and their hair type was huge because it was like no embrace your you know your african-americanness and be who you are absolutely instead of trying to conform to white beauty standards and products are only made for white women yeah so viola wanted to help spread this much needed dose of humanity in her black community unfortunately She was barred from studying at beauty schools in Halifax due to her race. Big surprise. It sucks. Thankfully, though, Madam C.J. Walker had opened up a bunch of beauty schools to train black beauticians, so Viola traveled to one of these schools in New York. And then she also traveled to Montreal and Atlantic City uh, previously on her quest to become a beautician, so she kind of had to bounce around to get this, like, well-rounded education, but... Madam C.J. Walker is empowering another herstory hero to be yep. amazing. Like, that Good. is, I love the herstory crossover. Empowered women empower women. Damn straight. So once Viola completed her Padawan training, she became a full-fledged beauty Jedi. Uh, she opened up her own hair salon. At the salon, she served some very notable black women, including opera singer Portia White and Nova Scotia's first black nurse, Gwen Jenkins. That's awesome. But Viola was kind of bitter that she had to travel across two fucking countries to even become a beautician. So she opened up her own beauty school called the Desmond School of Beauty Culture, which began training more beauty Jedi. Awesome. See? Empowered women. 
right? And literally, my next line is, this empowered black woman. (laughs) Uh... This empowered black women across Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Quebec to open their own salons and in turn hire more black women to work for them. So Viola is giving black women economic independence and power, which is amazing. And like, it just keeps going. Her school had about 15 graduates every year who otherwise wouldn't have been able to train as beauticians at white only schools. Like there was no other option. And Viola, I'm sure, had some you know, uh, privilege to be able to travel around to get her own training. Like, not everyone can do that. So Viola was an enterprising lady who also started her own product line called V's Beauty Products. Or maybe it was Vi's. V-I. I'm going to say V. Maybe Vi. Yeah, well, yeah, Viola. All right, Vi's Beauty Products. We have decided. <laughs> this is the... Herstory headcanon. It's Vi. Herstory headcanon. <laughs> She is also such a queen that she put her face on the products. So there's a oh, picture yeah. of her. There's a picture of her sepia face powder uh, that has her picture and name and reads, especially blended to enhance dark complexions. It's like a really like glamorous picture. Like her hair is all done up and she's kind of like looking over her shoulder a little like, huh? Yes, I really am this amazing. So she's straight up killing it, and then she marries uh, Jack Desmond, who was a barber, and they joined forces to open up a combined barbershop and beauty salon on Gottingen Street. Nice. Right? So, like, basically, Viola, Viola, sorry, Viola is over here living her best life, empowering women, women in her community, and just straight up killing it. But we all know how these fucking stories go. So on November 8th, 1946, Viola was traveling to Sydney in Canada on business. Unfortunately, she ran into car trouble in New Glasgow. And like, this is all in Canada. I don't know why every Canadian town is named after a different prominent city. It's because everyone came over and invaded Canada and just went, hey, we're we're taking this. I'm not even kidding. They're like, we're going to name this in honor of our city where we're from. You know what? This is just another reason that, like, colonialism and all that is bullshit. Like, there's a London, Canada. What? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, Viola had to wait until the next day to get her car fixed as the parts weren't available at the time. Making the best of a shitty situation, Viola went to see a movie at the Roseland Film Theater. The movie was Dark Mirror, starring Olivia de Havilland who my grandfather accidentally convinced my entire family was dead. Nice. So my gr- my grandfather misheard something on... No, my grandfather heard something on the radio about, I think it was maybe Errol Flynn dying or someone like that, miscommunicated it to my family who was visiting. And they're like, oh my God, Olivia de Havilland died? Because they're all from New York. And yeah. so they spend the whole day, like, talking about Olivia de Havilland and how much they miss her and how sad this is. And then my grandfather comes out of the other room. He goes, what's everyone talking about? They're like, oh, we're just talking about Olivia de Havilland dying. He goes, Olivia de Havilland died? <laughs> and they're like, you told us this. Exactly. By the way, she's still fucking alive and over 100 years old. This right? was she's fucking killing it. Yeah, this was ages ago. <laughs> 
So that's like a story my mom has told me a billion times. And the second I saw Olivia de Havilland's name, I hear my mother yelling, Olivia de Havilland died? <laughs> anyway, no one cares about that. So at, the t- at this time in New Glasgow, theaters weren't formally segregated. There were no laws on the books and there were no signs about... Uh, like oh this is the white area this is the black area exactly however viola made the mistake of taking the lack of segregation laws and signage as a sign that people wouldn't be complete dickbags the theater had a policy that main floor seats were for white customers only while black customers had to sit in the balcony interesting a lot enough uh the balcony seats cost 20 cents and had a two cent tax the Jeez. the main floor seats were 40 cents and had a three cent tax. So even though the balcony seats were cheaper, they were it, it seemed to me they were being taxed at a higher percentage. Yeah. But that but remember that that the main floor seats have a one cent higher tax than the balcony seats. Just put it in the vault. It's going to come back later. I wouldn't make you think of numbers if I didn't have to. So Viola bought a ticket, but didn't know that she was just automatically given a balcony seat. She's like, I want to see the movie. They're like, here's your ticket. You should inherently know that you sit in the balcony because you're black and your, like, inequality senses should be tingling. So naturally, she found a seat on the main floor near the screen. And, like, I'm more of a center last row kind of gal, but to each their own. I'm a center center kind of (laughs) gal. You are the center square. Because a black woman sitting on the main floor of a movie theater was literally the worst thing in the world, Viola was ordered to give up her seat and move to the balcony. And she she has this moment where she's like, oh, I see. And she realizes what's happening and commits to commits to her mistake and refuses to give, give up her seat. She's like, hey, I didn't mean to like piss y'all off, but fuck you. I'm sitting here because right, why like- not? Uh, you didn't tell me. You have nothing stating I can't sit here. So fuck There's you. literally no law even saying, like, that this has to be segregated either. Right. And here's the thing. Who the hell else is going to sit, like, front and center? No one sits there. No one. Right, just let her sit there. <laughs> right? Anyway, uh, again, because this is literally the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of Canada... Viola was forcibly removed from the theater. The removal was so violent that they actually injured her hip. And like, I get it, girl. Hip problems are the fucking worst. For her horrendous crime, Viola spent 12 hours in jail and was stuck with a $20 fine, which is about $265 today. But literally one cent is too much for this bullshit. Like... I don't care if it's still $20 today. That is insane. Yeah, I want to know what they, like, charged her with. Oh, if there's no oh, laws against out. her being there. What, did you just get charged with, like, disturbing the peace? Wait, wait for it, because it's somehow even stupider. I don't want to wait for it. I'm mad. It's somehow even stupider. Like, however angry you think you're going to be, just I'm already one angry. step up. Okay. <laughs> So during her arrest, she was never given the opportunity to speak with a lawyer, never informed of her rights, and never given the option to post bail. 
Jesus, Canada. So this kind of reminded me of the uh, the Leesburg stockade girls where like the cops basically just they just took them away someone. Yep. <laughs> so they literally threw her in jail without due process because they could, which I don't care if you're a cop. Like, isn't that kidnapping in some way? Like you're not being like charged or arrested or even told what's going on. So well, maybe Canadian laws are different. Canada, what are your laws for being arrested? (laughs) Oh, my God. So, remember the disproportionate tax on the balcony tickets that I mentioned, the one-cent difference? Yep. She was charged and convicted with depriving the government of the one-cent difference between the ticket taxes. Well, weren't the floor seats also more expensive? They were, but she wasn't being charged with, With like, not paying enough. You you screwed the government out of money, even if it was one only cent. one cent. Exactly. And then she got charged two hundred or twenty dollars. Jesus Christ! Yeah, I told you. That's, like I feel that, that might be the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Just wait; it gets worse. It gets dumber before oh, it great. gets better. Well, I mean, it, it's the same like scenario of dumb, but you're gonna get more angry. <laughs> So when Viola was finally able to return to Halifax, she told her husband what happened and he advised her to just let it go. Which I kind of get because you're made to feel powerless your whole life and he's probably just happy she made it out of there alive. Right. He's probably just like, he's like, leave it alone. It's done with. It's over. It's fine. Like, we can afford the fine, you're back, you're all here, like, we- it's probably like, just... only gonna get worse if you keep bringing it up. Exactly. And so here's the thing, like, I get that. And I'm not gonna be like, Jack, you asshole, like, I get it. Viola, however, would not let it go. She went to the leaders of her local church, Cornwallis Street Baptist Church. The minister, William Purley Oliver, and his wife, Perlene- which I love that his middle name is Pearly, and he married a woman named Pearlene. Yeah, that's Cute. great. They coordinated that. Oh, for sure. Like, he's like, oh, hey, what's your name? She goes, Pearlene, and he's like, married We're me. getting married. Yep. <laughs> We're going to have a bunch of children with gem-themed names, and it's going to be amazing. Yes, 100%. So they supported Viola and helped her take her fight to court. Which, like, is amazing, because that's a hard decision to make. To take anything to court is very difficult. So, the story of this first took off in Black-owned newspapers, particularly the Clarion, which was the first Black-owned published Nova Scotia newspaper. It was started by activist Carrie Best, who also had confronted discrimination at the same exact theater. So, the same theater is being an asshole, just, like, across the board. So this helped Viola gain support from the Nova Scotia Association for the Advancement of Color People, or the NSAACP. And they helped her hire a lawyer. So the government was dead set on pursuing this as a tax evasion case. This wasn't, uh, like, about race. It was like, well, like, you didn't pay us a cent of tax, and that's not cool. So let's not forget... This all-important one penny that everyone's fighting over. 
The statute that dictated this tax didn't have any explicitly racist language, so the theater could pretend that it wasn't a race thing. To be clear, I don't believe the tax was meant to be racist, and that's just how the theater was using it. Like, there was a certain... I mean, this is how much the ticket is, this is how much the tax is. They still should have been like, here's your balcony seat ticket. Like, they should have told her where she's sitting, not just given her a ticket. Oh, right. And there's, and here's the other thing. There's no signs. There's no, there's no segregation laws. And even though all of those would be inherently wrong, like, she didn't go out to make a statement. She just wants to go see Olivia de Havilland before she dies. And how is she supposed to know that, you know, her 23, 22 cent ticket versus a 43 cent ticket means you sit one place versus the other? Exactly. With no sign. So like, but again, the theater is using this law to like racially discriminate. To discriminate without discriminating. Right. Quotes. And like, this is very sinister. And we still see this like trick pull today. Like, oh, well, I mean, they did break the law. They should have complied. They should have known. And it's just as much bullshit now as it was then. So like, let's all. Remember this next time someone is arrested for something or are accosted for something stupid. We're like, well, I mean, if they had just done this. No, they shouldn't have to. Anyway, Viola's lawyer tried to fight back on the tax evasion through a judicial review instead of bringing up the blatant racial discrimination, human rights violations. So he's like, okay, the government wants to treat this as a tax evasion thing. We'll do that. Well... One cent tax evasion. Yes. So this would be proved to be a huge misstep, which ended up getting the case dismissed because there was no way to prove that she didn't commit tax evasion somehow, you know? Yeah. So he should have approached it like, no, this is blatant racism. And then the cops were aggressive and didn't grant her civil rights or even like follow the basic procedure that a five-year-old learns from watching one cop movie right exactly come on lawyer right he he ended up being kind of a big deal in canada i didn't write his name down because he just pissed me off the whole time so i was like right you don't get a name right now so justice william lorimer lorimer hall said when dismissing the case this is the judge that was like there's really nothing we can do here and this is heartbreaking he said had the matter reached the court by some other method than certiorari that's a hard word which is basically the seeking a judicial review there may there might have been an opportunity to right the wrong done this unfortunate woman. One wonders if the manager of the theater who laid the complaint was so zealous because of a bona fide belief that there had been an attempt to defraud the province of Nova Scotia of the sum of one cent, or was it a surreptitious endeavor to enforce a Jim Crow rule by misuse of a public statute? And in that, he sums up the whole goddamn situation beautifully. Right, he's like, if you had brought this to me as a race case, you have a case. Like. And he's acknowledging. He's not even like, well, she should have fucking known. He's He knows exactly what happened. 
and acknowledges that Viola has been wronged deeply, but because her lawyer didn't treat the case as a racial discrimination thing, there was no legal traction. To his credit, Viola's lawyer didn't charge her, which is literally the least he could do, and the money that would have been used to pay him was used to support the NSAACP. So there's that. After the legal loss, Viola closed her business and moved to Montreal to enroll in business school. Eventually, she found her way to New York City and died on February 7th, 1965, at the age of 50, of gastrointestinal bleeding. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And, like, I have gut Clearly issues. Clearly, she and wanted I have hip to issues. do more with her life. <laughs> Like, because she right. went back to business school and stuff. Like, clearly she must have had some sort of plan with, you know, the reason she went back to school and stuff. And then she just, that's sad. Stop yeah, thinking people get... who just die, Emily. <laughs> and then she died. The end. Thank you for joining me. This has been my TED Talk, Women Who Die. Uh, she is buried at Camp Hill Cemetery in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Now we have to add now Canada here's... to our list of places to go. Right. Now, here's the thing. The story has been a bummer, but my legacy section is a page. And again, we're bringing Mine's you like right a page back too. While Viola may have lost her legal battle, it had gained national attention and shined a light on the African Nova Scotian community's fight for equal rights. Viola had become a symbol for activists and many were spurred to action. She is often compared to Rosa Parks for challenging the whites only idea that ins- and inspiring subsequent civil rights movements. So nice. she's Canada's Rosa Parks, which again, I'm like, why haven't I heard of her? Right? Because we don't live in Canada. True. So Viola has been recognized in many different ways. And I could not name them all because once I got to like, a page and like this needs to end eventually the whole story will just be like her being honored in 2019 a nova scotia school teacher received the governor general's history award because she had her students uh propose a building of a statue of viola in cornwallis park so she and her students got together to propose this statue erection. And the proposal was actually for three statues to be added to the existing one of Edward Cornwallis, who was a British military leader. So the three statues would be uh, one of Viola, um, Acadian Noel Dior, Dor, Doiron? D-O-I-R-O-N? I'm so sorry, the story's not about them, but he's an uh, Acadian activist. And Mi'kmaq, uh, chief John Denny Jr. So he was an indigenous chief. And the plan was for the four statues of these diverse people to be facing each other as if they're having a conversation. That's cool. Isn't that super cool? Like I love when statues are more than just, there's a dude, like when they're telling right. a story. Kate... Anyone- If anyone knows if that happened and those statues got erected, let us know. Yeah, seriously, take some pictures. I want to see them. Kate Breton University has a scholarship that is named after Viola and Wanda Robson, who is Viola's sister and like a badass in her own right. She's been really huge for bringing Viola's story to attention and keeping her legacy alive. 
And I may have to do another episode on her because she kept popping up and I just I didn't have time to get into it. But she seems like a badass. And then for our history stamp collectors, she got her own commemorative stamp in 2012. What? What? Woot, woot. And then there's a ton more. There's so much more that has been done to honor her legacy and keep her name alive. But this is honestly my favorite. On December 8th, two, 2016, Viola Desmond was chosen to become the first Canadian woman to appear on the Canadian $10 note. Oh, that's cool. Someone the send design... us $10 from Canada. Yeah, please. Like, can you donate to our Patreon using a $10 note in Canadian money with Viola's it, face then. on it? Like, you take have to a picture. mail it to us. <laughs> yeah. No, I want them to, like, take a picture of them with the note and being like, this is going into your Patreon. And then we just know it's there. And we there's, like, $10 we just never spend. Right. So the design was released on November 26, 2018. The same year she was named National Historic... She was named a National Historic Person. And she has a star on Canada's Walk of Fame. Oh, that's awesome. And I love that apparently Canada's Walk of Fame is not just movie stars. It's like people who did really cool things. And the and the ten the ten note is so pr- it's purple, and it's got uh it's I got approve. this beautiful picture of her on it. Like it's very detailed. Oh, it's gorgeous. On April fourteenth, twenty ten, Viola was officially pardoned of her crime and granted an apology by Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia. Mayan Francis, who's also a black woman, and a posthumous pardon is very rare. Yeah, that's awesome, though. Um, I'm glad Mayans, that they, like, someone was like, no, we're going to do this. Exactly. Mayan said, quote, here I am 64 years later, a black woman giving freedom to another black woman. And if that doesn't just make you choke up. It like gave me tingles. I know. I like started feeling it in my throat. I was like, Emily, there has to be at least one episode where you don't cry. (laughs) This pardon and apology was brought on thanks to the efforts by Wanda Robson, Viola's sister. And then finally, no one sums up Viola's legacy better than William Pearlie Oliver, the minister who had helped her in her legal fight and encouraged her to fight it. He said of Viola's legacy 15 years after the historic legal battle, quote, This meant something to our people. Neither before or since has there been such an aggressive effort to obtain rights. Her her people arose as one and with one voice. This positive stand enhanced the prestige of the Negro community throughout the province. It is my conviction that much of the positive action that has since taken place stemmed from this. So this was like like she lit the spark. Yeah, that has resulted in everything since this was the, awesome. this was l- the moment, the watershed moment, and that is the story of Viola Desmond. And even Aww, though she didn't I get like justice during her life, I like I hope she feels it spirit like spirit form way. Just she like, knows she knows, she knows. <laughs> spirit form way. Like words are hard. Okay. But yeah, See, you mine, know what mine I mean. is a very monotone but happy story. Like there's not a ton of ups and downs. She's just a badass. Okay. 
I, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with, like, being all the way up here the entire time. I went and re- rewrote my note, my medical notes, so I'm doing a medical person this time. Ooh. So I'm covering um, Dr. Gerda Corey, or Gertie Corey. Sorry, lots of easy. Gertie Corey. That's cute. Yeah. So Gertie Corey was born originally Gertie Teresa Radnitz. Uh, she into a Jewish family in Prague in 1896. Okay. Okay. Um, her father was pretty neat. He his name was Otto, and he was a chemist that um, made a method of like refining sugar. So then he like went on to own a bunch of sugar refineries. Like it was really like I don't know what it was. I didn't look into it, but I was like, that's kind of neat. Would you say he was a sugar daddy? <laughs> I don't want to think about that. <laughs> you cannot um, just let that hang out there. <laughs> too bad. Um, her mother's name was Martha, and she was a friend friend of Franz Kafka, uh, who's a famous uh, writer. Yeah. Damn. Um, so, like, her mom was very, like, sophisticated and, like, a culturally well-rounded person. So that's where she's coming from. She was tutored at home. For most of her life before entering into a lyceum, which is a secondary school. That's what they call them in parts of Europe. Um, I was going to say, it so sounds like a, a drug. Secondary, right? Lyceum. It really does. I'm uh, going to need two milliliters of uh, lyceum stat. Right. <laughs> there you go. Um, so she entered a, a secondary school for girls, essentially, at the age of 16. Uh, and around that time, she decided she wanted to become a medical doctor. Probably because her uncle was a professor of pediatrics and he was very much encouraging of her to pursue that path. He was like, yeah, if you want to be a medical doctor, go for it. You know, like. And so that really kind of like was like, you know, she he pushed her into it and she was like, yeah, let's do it. And so I have to say, sorry, I have to say I love when there are male figures in these stories who encourage the women to go for it. They're like. Oh, no, girl, you got this. Do it. Like, go for it. I love you and I support you. It's great. Um, So she did. She started pursuing the study of science. um, And as she was doing that, Gertie learned that she was lacking in Latin physics, chemistry, and math. Which is is kind of like the core of, you know, science. Um, So in the most amazing move where I probably would have never succeeded... In one year, she learned the equivalent of eight years of Latin, five years of science, and five years of math in one year. That makes me nauseous. Just the eight years of Latin in a year makes me want to, like, throw up. If you th- and you throw in five years of science and five years of math. Dude, one like, year of math She literally is must have done nothing. <laughs> she must have literally done nothing but study for an entire year. Yeah. Like, like, because this wasn't just one subject. No, but think of how intelligent she has to be to learn 18 years of different subjects in a year. I feel sick. (laughs) Right. But she did it, and then she went on to pass the university entrance exam and in 1914, she went to the Karl Ferdinand's Universität in Prague, which was a medical school. 
um, which was very uncommon for women at the time. I didn't, I wasn't able to find like statistics on what number she was to go to that school, but it was, it was very uncommon. It was like, maybe you can count them on one hand. Probably. Um, while there, she fell in love with a man named Carl Corey, who was a student as well, studying to be a doctor. Um, and he, you know, he fell for her as well. Apparently she had a great sense of humor. They both had a love of the outdoors and mountain climbing and skiing as well. Um, and they were both very interested in not just medical stuff, but particularly like lab research into medical conditions. So they kind of bonded over that. And in 1920, the two published uh, the results of their first research together received their medical degrees, and got married. Good God, she does not do anything slowly. She's like, we're just going to fit it all in at once. Let's do this. Right. Um, when they married, Gertie did convert to Catholicism so that they could get married in a Roman Catholic church together. So that was nice of her. Cool. Um, then they, they then went on to move to Vienna in Austria, where Gertie spent two years uh, working at the Carlinen, Carlinen, I don't know, something around those lo- that line, Children's Hospital. Um, she worked in, in pediatrics, kind of following her uncle. Um, and while she was there, she, you know, she did normal pediatrics stuff, but she also did experiments in temp- temperature regulations um, that had a lot to do with like thyroid treatment and seeing if thyroid treatment changed people's temperatures like before and after. And she also, during this time, published a paper on blood disorders. Oh, that's interesting. Right? Um, when World War I hit, uh, Carl was drafted into the Austrian army. There wasn't a whole lot about what she did during that time. That, mu- that might have been when she was working at the Children's Hospital. But, like, they didn't specifically... She must not have entered service in World War I because they didn't call it out in any of the articles I read. Please tell me Carl comes home. He does. Don't worry. Oh, thank He's God. He's in this whole story. He's a great guy, actually. Um, I was going to say, I can't after... deal with her cool husband being murdered in World War One. Like, please right. don't. <laughs> However, life was difficult after the war as Gertie started suffering from xerotholamia, which is a medical condition in which your eyes fail to produce tears. Oh. And this was caused by the severe malnutrition due to food shortages during World War One. Oh, my God. See, yeah. I was I was going to say it was like from all of that studying, fitting 18 years of learning she into one year, anymore. her eyes just rebelled and they're like, we are fucking done here. No, it was. Yeah, it was. I mean, she lived in Germany at the time or Austria. Um, Yeah, Austria. So I'm sure they had severe food shortages. Wow. Um, so those problems that she was having with her eyes in conjunction um, with the increasing anti-Semitism, obviously, uh, contributed what? to the dis- their dis- their decision to leave Europe. So the the Corys were like, "No, we should probably get out of here." Smart. So in 1922, the Corys emigrated to the United States. Uh, it took Gertie six months longer than Carl because she had difficulty obtaining a position here. So then she, because she couldn't obtain a teaching or a position, she had difficulty getting a visa. So it took her six months longer than him. That sucks. Like, just no one wanted to hire her? Yeah, she's a woman. It's 1922. 
let's think about the ramifications of that, that it was harder for you to leave uh, what was becoming Nazi Germany as a woman because you were a woman, even though you're probably more likely to be victimized because you're a woman. Right. I know. It's it's insane. Gross. So they, they both came to the United States um, and they decided to pursue medical research and they both got hired at the State Institute for the Study of Malignant Diseases. Which is now Cute. the Roswell Park Cancer Institute. So they're they're researching cancer, essentially. Okay. Um, I, so I'm glad in... they did a better name that wasn't so depressing. Like, it, it sounds like the building just wants to jump off a bridge. Right. And this is in Buffalo, New York. So they're, they're in New York. Pretty good state. Um, in, tw- in 1928, they did become naturalized citizens. So that was, like, that's super cool. They both became naturalized citizens. Um, however, during this time... The director of the institute, whose name I didn't write down because fuck him, um, threatened <laughs> oh, no. to dis because he threatened to dismiss Gertie if she did not cease collaborating with her husband. So they were working a lot together on their research, and they were like, "No, you can't do that." And she was like, "Yeah, fuck you." Why? So she continued. She continued to work with him, and they never fired her. <laughs> There's She's a like- lot in. In general, especially back then, about, like, nepotism and, like, family connections and, you know, like, people didn't like that. Even though everyone did it. Like, don't pretend you were better at that time. I also also imagine her just being like, give me a reason. I want you to try. Come at me. I'm, I want you. I want you to try to come at me so I can shut you down. He's like, "Mm, No. Right. I don't have a plan B. I was just she's hoping just such a badass that she's like, yeah, come at me, bro. And he's like, mm, I'm good. I'll just stay over <laughs> here. <laughs> so um, although they were discouraged in working together, they like I said, they just kept doing it because fuck them. Right. Um, and what they were working on was investigating a carbohydrate metabolism. So like ho- how our bodies, you know, metabolize carbohydrates, particularly in how glucose is metabolized in human bodies and the hormones that go into glucose regulation. Isn't that sugar? Yes. From her sugar daddy? Good job. No, this is from her <laughs> husband. <laughs> no, no, but like her her sugar she, daddy. She found her own sugar daddy. <laughs> no, but uh, what I mean is like her father's I know, like, I'm trying not to sugar call him is coming that. back. Her sugar father, yes. her sugar paternal figure. <laughs> Her glucose. Um, So during this time while they were doing this research, together they published over 50 papers together. And what I think is really cool about this, and her husband is obviously a great guy, is because whenever they co-authored these papers together, whoever did more of the research, that name went first. That is awesome. Yeah, so if, if she did the primary research and he helped her, her name went first, followed by his. But if it was the other way around, his name went first and then hers. Like, they were legitimately sharing the work together. That is incredible. What a novel concept. Right? <laughs> um, she did also, Gertie did also publish 11 author articles all by herself. So, like, nice. she was doing her own stuff, too. Um. And in 1929, they proposed a theoretical cycle that would later win them the Nobel Prize. I'll get to that. Oh, snap. Which is known as the Cori cycle. And it's a cycle that describes how the human body uses chemical reactions 
to break down carbohydrates such as glycogen in muscle tissue into lactic acid while synthesizing others. I don't fully understand that, but good job. It's like there are words that I know I've heard before, like lactic acid was something I always heard in swimming, you know, and like that's what causes the pain. It's the lactic acid building up in your muscles, and that's why you got to warm up and cool down. Right. I know what glucose. Um, I think there were some articles in there like the, so I know that one. Right. I know some of it. Um, so the, the Corys did end up leaving Roswell shortly after that pub paper was published in 1931. Um, and at first they didn't know where to go because while a ton of universities are offering Carl jobs, almost all of them were refusing to hire Gertie. And he's like, no, I'm not going to go somewhere that I can't work with my wife. Because she's amazing and you don't deserve her. Um, in fact, one of the universities, I, I, it didn't say which one, uh, said that it was unsexy finger quotes, un-American for a married couple to work together. Yeah, right. I thought I didn't realize you were prefacing unsexy finger quotes. So I thought the university was literally saying it was unsexy. <laughs> no. Unsexy finger quotes to Amer to un-American. Oh my god. Which is, you know, they probably so, didn't think it was very sexy. That's so ridiculous. Like, eventually, uh, Washington University uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, offered both of them jobs. However, Gertie's rank and salary were significantly lower than her husband, even though they're literally basically the, like, they've done all their research together almost. Like, they're basically the same person. <laughs> I know, like, from a professional standpoint, they have all the same credentials. They have all their names on all the same papers. I'm sure he was publishing stuff on his own, too. But she's also independently publishing. Like, if you just changed her name on the resume, they would have hired her in a heartbeat. And she just would have showed up and they'd be like, whoa, tits, what? Exactly. So she she was offered a position as research associate where I believe he was offered just like the normal, you know, like researcher position. Um, Her salary was one tenth of her husband's. And she was told when that when she got hired with him that she was going to hurt his career. Wow. And like, yeah. and then to be told, like, by the way, if your husband ever suffers in his career, it's your fault. So hope know, you sleep well bullshit. with that little nugget. Right. Gertie continued working there, though, and it took her 13 years to attain the same rank as her husband. Sorry, I'm just like, I like tilted my head back and because I'm just so disgusted. I guess I guess this is my down divot. <laughs> Um, I thought this is all going to be high. Right. In 1943, she was made an associate professor of research biology, chemistry, and pharmacology. And then just a few months before she won her Nobel Prize, she was promoted to a full professor and held that post until her death. There was no way she was letting that shit go. She's like, it took me 13 unnecessary years to get here. I learned Latin. I learned eight years of Latin in one year. Shouldn't have taken me 13 years to get here, assholes. (laughs) Right. Okay, there's going to be a lot of uh, more stuff that we're not going to understand in this, but this is for the chemistry people out there. 
our little fenestrators. So while, while working at one of Washington University, they started um, more glycogen research, and they discovered a um, a compound that enabled the breakdown of glycogen called glucose-1-phosphate, which is now known as the coriester. So, like, it's named after them. Okay. Um, Because they they established the structure of the compound, identified the enzyme phosphorylase that catalyzed its chemical foundation, and showed that it is the beginning step in the conversion of carbohydrate glycogen into glucose. So, breaking down, I think it's complex sugars into... Um, simple sugars? I don't know. My my simple explanation of it was breaking down energy stores into a format in which they can be used. I'm like, all there right, you that go. Makes sense. All right, I'm I'm back on board now. I kind of tuned out there for a minute, but I'm here. Right. It's okay. Um, it is the last step in the conversion. Like I, so it's that it's the last step, and it is a reversible step. They found out. So that's kind of cool. Oh, weird. Um, during this time, Gertie was also studying by herself um, gly- a glyco- glycogen storage disease, and she identified four different forms of it, um, which is which were related to enzymatic defects. Um, and she was the first person to show that a defect in an enzyme can be the cause of a human genetic disease. Wow. So that it's not all DNA. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's all DNA based, but you know what I mean, like. Yeah. So, in 1947, Gertie and Carl Corey were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for their discovery of the course of the catalytic conversion of glycogen. So, that thing I talked about earlier. That is crazy. So, together, they they received technically one half of the prize because uh, physiologists... Bernardo Husse also earned the prize that year. I didn't know multiple people could earn it in one year, but apparently they can. Well, they have a thing where I think it's only three people can win it in one year. So there have been, I think there was an instance where, was it Rosalind Franklin went through that where they, where they denied her? Yeah, it was like her, the Nobel Prize because three guys got it or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And they're like, well, it can only be three. It's like, I'm sorry, is, like, three the magic number at which it takes to create, like, innovations into human understanding? Like, I didn't know it It only took three people. It couldn't be, like, a bigger team of people. Right. I, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um. So even after they won their Nobel Prize, they continued to work on, like, carbohydrate metabolism and the different things on sugars and starch. Um, and a lot their findings later proved to be crucial in the development of treatment for diabetes, obviously, because that has a lot to do with how our bodies deal with sugars. Right. So something I didn't mention, but this is how my notes are ordered, because this is the sad part. <laughs> Just before winning, like months before winning the Nobel Prize, while they were on a mountain climbing trip, because, of course, no, um, they learned that Gertie was ill with a relatively rare bone marrow blood cancer thing called myelosclerosis. What? She was a lot she was alive to get the Nobel Prize, don't worry. They just happened to find out right before. They think that her study working with x-rays when she was at the Institute of Malignant Diseases may have contributed to it. 
However, she struggled with this disease for 10 years. She went on 10 more years working with this illness, continuing to do her work and research up until the just months before she died. So she's like, no, fuck this. I'm going to kick ass until I die. That is absolutely incredible. But can we just point out the like weirdness of the fact that she works at a place called the you know institute of malignant diseases gave her a malignant disease yeah like well, what? may have <laughs> we're not, they're not sure because of you know you can't tell she died in her home in 1957 um and she was cremated and her ashes scattered later her son who was never mentioned which is why i never mentioned him because in all of my research literally this was it his name was tom <laughs> oh tom um, they lay the he erected a cenotaph, which is like an empty tomb or a monument, like you'll see them places, um, for both Gertie and Carl that stands in the Bellefontaine Cemetery in St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, that good boy, Tom. Right. So now son. I have also like a page of stuff <laughs> for her legacy. Bring it on. So, when she won her Nobel Prize in 1947, she was only the third woman to do so. Wow. The two before her were Marie Curie and Irene <laughs> uh, Jolet Curie. Those were the only two women before her. And so, technically, Gertie was the first American women- woman to win a Nobel Prize and the first woman ever to win the Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine. Wow. Yeah. Was she also, I, I don't know, no, because she converted to Catholicism. Never mind. Yeah, I was going to say, was she the Jewish. first Jewish woman? No. I mean, I don't know what Marie Curie was or the other person. So I don't know. I just know Marie Curie but she was said, born yeah, she in Poland, but she's a nationalized French citizen. That's all I know. Yeah. Um, sorry. She was elected into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1953. She was the fourth woman elected into the National Academy of Sciences. Apparently two different ones. Um, She was appointed by Harry Truman as a board member of the National Science Foundation, which she held until her death. Wow. Yeah. Um, she She was a board member on a whole bunch of different, like, Chemist societies, bio- biology societies. I'm not going to list them all because there's a ton. And let's she be and her honest, they together- mean nothing to us. <laughs> right? But it's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, she and her husband were jointly awarded with the Midwest uh, Award, which is for the American Chemical Society, which is cool. Um, she was honorary honorarily awarded doctorates from several universities, including... Um, Yale and Columbia and more. Wow. Wait, more university right. or more universities? More universities. Okay. Additional universities. Additional universities. I just mentioned <laughs> Yale and Columbia because they're they're big ones. Okay. Um, the 25 square foot laboratory that she shared with her husband has been deemed a national historic landmark. Yes. Um, six of the scientists mentored by her and her husband went on to win Nobel Prizes themselves. That's super cool. I love that. 
Uh, the Cory Crater on the moon and on and the Cory Crater on Venus are both named after her. Aww. She, Is it like just she her, shares or a, her and her husband? It says just her. Wow. She shares a star on the St. Louis Walk of Fame with her husband, which is cute. Uh, for our history stamp collectors, you get two in one episode. Because um, she received a U.S. postal stamp on April 2008. It was a 41 cent stamp and it had a printing error on it. Oh, my God. Because they, they put the chemical formula for the coriester molecule that she discovered with her husband um, on it. And apparently it was wrong. That's fucking... I bet she would have found that funny. Yeah. But I also love how both of the women we covered have stamps, but then they also both have stars on some walk of fame. Right? I think it's awesome. The U.S. Department of Energy named one of their supercomputers that's at Berkeley um, that was installed in 2015-2016 after Corey, and it was ranked fifth on the the list, the world's list of most powerful computers in, as of 2016. So that's pretty wow. cool. And although she ha- faced a lot of prejudi- prejudice during her time, she is viewed today and celebrated as one of the biggest pioneers as a woman of science. That's amazing. So yeah, that's Dr. Gerda Corey and her actually super kick-ass husband. Yeah, again, I love when I love when the gentlemen in our stories are very supportive because I feel like we've kind of come to feel the beats of a lot of these stories like okay, I know where this is going and um Men are not inherently bad, but they usually don't come off well no. in these stories. But when they do, it's it's always this, like, really delightful thing. And I can almost guarantee you at the time when they were publishing these papers, I can almost guarantee you people were giving more credit to her husband than her. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say it's kind of advantageous that they had the same last name because it, it was like one name can apply to both of them. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah, I, I, that, that's why I wanted to re, because these are the notes that disappeared. That's why I wanted to rewrite them because I was like, she's such a badass. But last week I was like, I just can't handle that. I just can't. No, I, I get it. And you, you always tackle the medical stories very well or the, or the scientific ones because I struggle with that shit. Like, I have a passion. I have a passion for STEM. That's why. Not, maybe not the math in STEM, but the rest of it. <laughs> Well, you know what? If uh, all you have to do is learn eight years of math in one year and then do the same thing with Latin and science and uh, you're going to be doing STEM magic too. Like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, no. I I, I don't even want to do one year of math in a year. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, that that's the part of the story that blows my mind the most. I'm like, how? I know. Like I said, she must have literally done, like, absolutely nothing else. Yeah. Well, I guess that's it for today. All right. Um, Kelly, what are you thankful for? You really, you really had to think about that. You're like, what do we do at the end of our episode? No, it, I was giving you the opportunity to ask me because you're always mad that I ask you first. But I'm like... Is she going to ask me? I don't know. I guess right. I'll just ask her. 
Yes. So in this time of hardness and fear, um, this is going to seem weird because I'm probably going to get laid off from my job, but I'm really happy with how my com- the company I work for is treating it. The They're doing everything they can to not lay off as many people as they can. And like the upper management and the CEO are taking the biggest pay cuts and they're but they're they're also being incredibly transparent to us, like us as workers as to what they're doing. Like they're sharing everything they can with us, you know, and I as an employee, I really appreciate that, you know, because technically I'm not getting laid off. We're going to those of us that end up happening to are going to be furloughed, which means it's just temporary and they, they will be giving us our a job back. They can't guarantee it'll be the same job, but they're like, yes, we will rehire. You know, you're you're coming back. But, you know, like, it's just nice to see them doing everything in their power to make us, you know, as knowledgeable about the situation as possible, because not all companies do that. So I'm really thankful for that. And that that's really wonderful, because this is a very difficult time. And uh, it's it's kind of the the employees who are on the front lines are really paying the price and so for an organization a company a business to be as transparent and be as supportive as possible is greatly appreciated and i've i've been seeing this meme going around where it's like at my next interview i'm going to ask what did you do to to protect your employees during the covid crisis um i'm having a similar experience with my job uh where just my the management is being very transparent and being very supportive. Like I have had my hours cut, but they're doing everything they can to make sure everyone right. can keep working and keep having a right. job. Um, and, and I mean, it, I think at my job, we understand that like there are people at my job that need to keep working. Absolutely. Like, you know, and it's like, I think those of us that are non-essential, um, or more non-essential are are 100% on board like with like yeah we you know the nurses need to keep working we understand that yeah like and so you know it's it's but it's nice to hear them say like they've said multiple times like we we will come back from this and it's gonna you know we're gonna need you absolutely but I'm glad your work is also being very transparent about it. I feel like that makes it a little easier. It Yeah, it makes any sacrifice you have to make a little easier because you feel that the sacrifices are in your best interest along with the, the business, you know? It's not just, yeah. oh, well, I want to keep paying for my, my houseboat, so, you know, you're going to have to suck right. it up. It's, it, it, it's crazy how, you know, treating people with basic decency really goes a long way, I, uh, you know? Hmm. Huh. What are you thankful um, for? Uh, it's kind of a thankful thing, but it's more of a like yippee. Uh, so we live like about like maybe less than 30 minutes away from uh, a state park. And mm-hmm. I love hiking in the woods. I love all that shit. And I had no idea that this place was so close. And so Jared took me on a drive and we drove through there. And I was Which like, place is it? Right? I was like, how have I never heard of this? So yesterday... No, which uh, place we, is it? Tell me this. Uh, it's, oh, sorry. I couldn't I couldn't hear you. It's Whitewater. Oh, is it really like 30 minutes away? Yeah, it's Like, I knew it was close. there. I didn't realize it was so close, though. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. like maybe even less than 30 minutes. It's, it's not that gorgeous. far. 
Um, but it is absolutely beautiful. And so yesterday, uh, Jared and I took a walk there and we walked up this trail where it's like stairs that go straight up this bluff, uh, to what's called chimney rock because of the erosion. There's just like this structure of rock that kind of crops out and on top of everything. And it's got like little holes eroded into the base of it. So you can actually crawl into the rock and basically look out these windows, onto everything below because you're super high up and it was just it was really great to get outside and do something a little different and then we got to do that together um it's funny though so jared served in iraq and he uh he fared pretty well like with the inherent danger there but we got to the top of that thing and i'm going towards the edge and i'm like this is so cool and he's like he did not handle it well. Like, he was having really high anxiety. He's like, because if you fall off, there's nothing I can do about it. You're just gone. Get the fuck away. He's like, I was more anxious with you up there than I was in fucking Iraq. I just want to say this entire time you've been talking, I've been, like, trying to look at your left hand. I'm like, is this going to be a proposal story? No, 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 no. I know. Don't worry. I saw it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it was just, it was uh, a funny... It, it was a, it was a lot of fun, and That's we got awesome. some exercise, and it was really cool. And I definitely want to go back and explore more because going up and down kind of you know took it out of us. But we'll have to go once this is all over. I want to like go oh, walking yeah, sure. and hiking with I you. I would love to do that. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Whining About Herstory. Uh, please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory and Instagram WAH Pod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com and we have an email address, whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us, uh, say their names or who your herstory heroes are. We also have a Patreon where you can donate at as little as $1 to get some exclusive content that we're hopefully going to be getting more of out here soon. Yes, I am actually, I'm putting it on my calendar to uh, record a, a bonus Patreon episode. Uh, and I'm writing it down so it will happen because if I write it down and it doesn't get done, the shame might kill me. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. And also, uh, real quick, please leave us five stars wherever you listen. Podchaser uh, is a popular podcast platform. And they are actually donating 25 cents to Meals on Wheels for every review and every review response. So if we respond to you saying, hey, thanks for the review, 25 cents goes to meal on wheels. So that's 50 cents, up to 50 cents for every review. So if you've been waiting to review us, if you're like, "Eh, I don't know, this is the time, guys. Yeah, go review all of your favorite podcasts on Podchaser and don't get those donations out to Meals on Wheels because that's incredible. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.